Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing well. How are you, Pat? <laughs> we have a running joke. Remember, uh, Pontius Pilate actually asked a really good question. What is truth? But he didn't stick around for an answer. When the average person asks, how are you doing? <laughs> they don't stick around for an answer. <laughs> Hurry up, Mike. We got to move on. <laughs> yeah, we got to. Yeah, if I see you, Pat, I'm, I'm really not doing well this morning. It, Oh, uh, listen, <laughs> let's edit that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so for this morning, uh, I think, I think I read this on your blog and you were referencing maybe a David Brooks post or something, but, it, uh, it was talking about social trust and the fact that, uh, it seems it, it has been degrading for a while and now we're at a spot where it's pretty low. Uh, we see that in recent events. Um, yeah, so I'm curious your take, not only on, on just short current, but how, how do we rebuild that? And we're not going to solve that as a societal problem, but maybe me as a you know 30 year old husband, father of two, like what, what can I do to help take a step towards rebuilding that? Even if it's just for my local community or my local neighborhood. Sure. Yeah. That's a, uh... That's a good, uh, good question. Let's tackle it. Uh, for listeners, the article is in The Atlantic, and it's called America is Having a Moral Convulsion by David Brooks. The date on it was October 5, 2020. So if you, uh, those were my reading glasses that were coming off my face when uh, I hit that microphone there. <laughs> a little excited there. <laughs> I got it. I wanted to make sure. We're trying to help you listeners. Come on, give us a break. <laughs> And uh, so it's it's um, it's a it's very it's a very good article. It's, it's multi layered, so we're not going to tackle all that. We figure if you can listen, you can probably read too. So we assume our <laughs> listeners can read. And um, there you have it. So you can go to that link, The Atlantic, October five, twenty twenty. Now, for our purposes, so yesterday I received a call, uh, actually from. Uh, one of my protégés, if you want to put it that way, and uh, he's a good young man. In fact, Pat, who's on this podcast on the other side, knows this man, so we'll leave, we'll leave his name out. But um, he was going through some performance reviews at his work, and one was from uh, someone who was actually under him in the organization, and he was calling because it said it really undid him, was the phrase he used, and he wasn't particularly sure why, and he wanted just to uh, run it by me. Now, there were no details. I don't know who this person was. I don't know any of the details. Everything was kept anonymous. But the more we talked, um, and he filled in some of them, because he, he receives regular periodic performance reviews. Uh, I know him to be someone who's pretty receptive to all that. Uh, no one really looks forward to them. Um, 
So I came back in the end and said, okay, so some total of everything you said, you still haven't asked, answered the question, why do you feel undone by this? Why have you, why is it shaking you? And he hit the nail on the head and he said, I don't know, it just seems like this is an issue of trust. And I said, do you think that this individual trusts you? Uh, a, by the way, a, um, a corollary to the word trust that will help is confident in you. You know, they remove governments in England if they lose a vote of confidence. And so what they're acknowledging is, no matter what we try to do here, I don't trust you. And uh, so the more we, we spoke, the more he came to uh, discover, realize, that probably is the issue. And uh, so we talked about some ways that he could uh, sit down with his colleague and address uh, a deeper issue than just simply, this was a tough review because... I generally handle tough reviews well, and you might hit the nail on the head, but there's something in the tone and tenor that seemed to give away, there's more going on here than just in this review. Mm. And I think that's a, a crack into a world of increasing mistrust and distrust. And that's what Brooks is talking about. So there are a lot of ways we can talk about this, Pat. We can talk about it in general society. In fact, we'll do that for a moment. And then we'll talk about how this actually even plagues the uh, American Christianity. Um, so, want to do that? That sounds great. So a lot of people would say, well, we say a lot of people. I think people who are given to history would uh, take this back some 500 years. And here's why I say this. We are today a, a nation divided, no news there. And a lot of people have been citing Lincoln's famous, a house divided speech. And the best part of that speech perhaps for us is, uh, now I'm gonna paraphrase, but he could say, if we could know from where we came and where we, what we pay attention to, we might know what to do. Now, students of the Bible will know that sounds very similar to a so-called tribe of people in the Old Testament. Does that ring a bell, Pat? Sure. I mean, sure. Of <laughs> remember, <laughs> we've talked multiple times this idea of remember, remember, and if we if we know where we came from. So yeah, there's a I could see a connection there. Obviously, and they were called. There you go, the sons of of Judah. Yeah, Issachar. So they're actually a subset of a, of mm. the nation of Judah. Yeah, there you the go. sons of Issachar. Uh, so first of all, for you young listeners, if you're looking for a name for your first child, there you go, Issachar. <laughs> and it'll be just kind of a conversation starter. Uh, Especially that son or daughter who grows up and say, "Why in the heaven's name did you <laughs> did you name me Isakar?" Well, it's a uh, podcast one time, <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that guy's going on to other things. Huh? Uh, sons of Isakar, <laughs> uh, for you listeners, First Chronicles twelve thirty two. 
Now, sons and daughters of Issachar today are those who understand the times, or as Lincoln put it, from whence we came. So they would go, hmm, so now I, now I have some ideas on the way forward, what we can do. And we've talked about this before, but because Americans are generally illiterate of history, uh, historically illiterate, they confuse activity for advancement. They, can, they confuse just doing about anything with what could be uh, something that would be remedial, redemptive, or a way forward. It's similar to being lost in the woods without your phone. So you don't have any GPS, you don't have any markers, and you could just mistake, well, I'm moving. And so we often call things, even in the faith community, we're forming a movement. And I, I find myself thinking, from where to where? Movement is not the key. It's actually intelligent advancement. And without knowing the times, people don't know. Generally, I find they don't know what to do. Or their solutions don't really wrap their arms around the height and breadth and depth of the challenge. So I'm going to suggest to you, and there's nothing original here, but um, this challenge of collapsing social trust that Brooks talks about goes back 500 years. And it goes back to a movement called the Enlightenment. Now, one of the running jokes in our family is many years ago, after I gave a brief talk somewhere on the Enlightenment, my wife of almost 40 years looks at me at the way, on the way home and says, so tell me again, what's the Enlightenment? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm having a thought bubble. If the woman I live with and sleep with night in after night out has no idea what I'm talking about, clearly I've not done a very good job here. <laughs> <laughs> and the enlightenment, in a nutshell, is two things. The best book on this is by a man named Britton, and we can send you the links if you're interested. You probably won't read it. It's not necessary. But the enlightenment was our age... This, and this age coming up is superior to all previous ages. And second, we figure out truth, the autonomous individual, through using his or her rational faculties. In fact, the very phrase, figure it out, comes out of the Enlightenment. And that is a, as opposed to a more ancient phrase of discovering or remembering discovering, we've talked about before, is a word with a hyphen in front of it, I mean with a prefix in front of it. So all truth is covered, so to say. And the key to going forward is uncovering what is there, or discovering it. The Enlightenment introduced the idea, you don't need to know the past. It was filled with superstition, religious authorities, uh, corruption. And we have to unshackle the mind so that it can figure out the best way to go forward with technology, education, science, 
mathematics, our bodies, our sexuality. So the seedbed for this is 500 years ago with the Enlightenment. Now there's more to say, but we'll hit pause right here. Pat, as you chew on this, how's the taste? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little foreign, a little bitter. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> no, but that, your definition is great. That was really helpful. I think you you very much you don't oversimplify, but you you it's very concise, which is good. Well, believe me, Isaac Newton said, "If I've seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants." And um, so, nothing original here, and all of it through discovery. Now, I want to say just a tad more about discovering because I think I've been wrong uh, on this. For a long time and recently sort of had a felt like i kind of dug a little deeper so here we go and the idea of discovering or uncovering i think i've often said before is because uh, the truth is sort of coded over in a sinful world uh, that's not quite right the truth has always been covered even before we fell in the very created world any idea why? What comes to mind is the you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and uh, there's just sort of like a, a maturing piece. There was the the question being, was God always going to prevent them from eating of that tree, or was he was he going to reveal it over time or something? There is that kind of where you're going. Mm -hmm. That's not a bad stab. That's pretty good. I, I, I would say no. It's There's nothing in it. He says, do not touch it. That it doesn't say do not touch that for the next 48 hours or something mm -hmm. like that. So, uh, good stab. Let me suggest to you this. It's actually in one of the for Emily Dickinson's famous poems. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. That is, tell it that leaves a lot to the imagination that you have to uncover. And as the poem goes on, I'm not doing justice to it. Why do we, why is that necessary for truth? What did Dickinson say? What did she write? You got me. I sure do. Uh, <laughs> I'm struggling, Mike. It's because um, truth will blind you. The truth about God, if we saw it in part, uh, in whole, would blind us. Even Moses, when he says, show me your face, <clears throat> God says, can't. Mm. You, would be, you would be incinerated. You would be. I can show you my glory. And so the Bible says we know in part. Um, tell all the truth. Tell it slant. Otherwise, we'd all be blind. I think this is even in creation. And so what you have is for thousands of years before the Enlightenment, the notion that we know in part, we don't figure out how to make things work. We discover how they were designed to work. And we uncover, not because sin put a dust coating over the world. I'll grant you that sin made it more difficult. But it's always been there. And it also, I think, is part of God's intention 
that his bride would mature. And so, hey, we never fallen. We would always be discovering truth and as his intended bride to be mature and up to speed, so to say, and have dirt under her fingernails and so on and so forth. The enlightenment is the overthrow of that enchanted, mystical, mysterious, spiritual world. It is the throwing off of that. It is the slow eclipse of this spiritual world. And it has pretty much eclipsed it throughout the Western world. And because the Western world is the main exporter of cultures today throughout the world. Now, what comes with that is a mistrust or distrust of any authority beyond what you can figure out. And that is the seedbed for where we are today. Yeah, I think one very, very small examples is just the idea of, uh, like, what's that? What's that rule in place for? Or what's that? Why does that law exist? You know, I, I don't need to follow it if it doesn't make doesn't make sense. That's right. Like, I must I must comprehend it and understand it personally, if I'm going to take it seriously. Yes. It, and and that's subtle, but but there's definitely a drive there that is unique to our time. Yeah. And again, well, we're, now what we're going to say about uh, the famous German monk Martin Luther is a word to us uh, to, in two ways. Because what I'm going to tell you about him, I don't think he intended, nor did he foresee it coming. And it's the same way that we often say. You know, what will people say 20 years from now, some unfortunate slob has, has listening to these podcasts. <laughs> and he says, how could they have missed that? Well, it's because we're doing the best we can. But when Luther, as a, trying to be a devout monk, could never quite come to a sense of absolution that he was forgiven until as he tells a story by Reading in Romans one day, he felt this sudden sense that he was forgiven, that Romans spoke to him. And this is what was revolutionary, that he never intended to be the revolution that it is, or became, is it fit right in the genre of the Enlightenment, because now, for Luther, it was no longer discovering through the sacraments, that is, sacraments comes from the idea that God is present everywhere in the universe, including the world, including the soil that you put your hands in, and you discover who he is. For Luther, no, it was a room, a Bible, and the Holy Spirit. And he figured it out. Now, let's 
Let's be charitable, first of all, because it's the right thing to do. And second, because you and I, Luther's going to be waiting at the pearly gates for us. We don't want his arms crossed. <laughs> so, <laughs> Luther, when he defended his uh, 95 theses that he posted, uh, the, uh, the door, the chapel door, uh, Wittenberg, within 20, 30 years, the Catholic Church had agreed with upwards of 70 or more, somewhere in there. He was basically saying, here's 95 things that are wrong with this church. There is no doubt that he was reacting in part to a very corrupt, very corrupt period in the Roman Catholic Church. I get it. And his desire was for reform within that tradition and renewal, at least initially. But when he defended himself at the Diet of Worms, asked to recant, he said, I, I could do no other. My conscience, I must obey my conscience. I think you'd find most of the language before then was, we must obey our conscience. There was a collective sense of discovering together what might be God's will or God's solution in these situations. He was reinforcing enlightenment individualism, whether or not he meant it. And the can of worms, in my opinion, that he opened, or the, actually, I think it's a Pandora's box, to be frank, is all Pat Brown needs is the Bible and the Holy Spirit and this vertical shaft of light between he and God. And um, you're good to go. You can know the Bible. Tradition? <laughs> What's that? Um, and then it's easy then to set up uh, that anything outside of that that you could figure out is obviously secular and not of God. Now that's just a microcosm of the macro. The macro is we live in a nation where if I'm on the left, then I demonize everything on the right. I'm on the right, I demonize the liberal media and the left. Why would we not trust that they might get something right? It goes back to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is, if I can't figure it out, it ain't right. This is exacerbated by a couple of things before we jump into Brooks' article, pick up the 20th century, but this goes back to the 19th century and uh, what one of the popes called the masters of suspicion. He was thinking of three individuals. Can you imagine who they are? 19th century, 1800s, masters of suspicion. <clears throat> I'm quite out of my depth here, Mike. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> First, uh, Darwin, Freud, Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche, the man with the name, impossible to remember how to spell. I, I literally, when I start to tap out his name, I cannot get the freaking German name right. <laughs> spell check every time it comes up. It's spelled this way, idiot. <laughs> I am not an idiot. <laughs> By the way, the, the origins of the word idiot. 
go back to what would that be well pre-enlightenment if you were an individualistic idiot idiot secrecy you'd be an idiot you're an idiot to go through life i am a rock i am an island i'm an individual i'll figure this out that was all considered to be idiocy that's idiocy who in heaven's name do you think you are well you'd be a jefferson man they lighten the people generally and tyranny will disappear like the dew in the morning well that's jefferson 1816 but to create the America that we live in today, it took the masters of suspicion. Darwin, Freud, Nietzsche. Let's just tick off what they what went into eclipse is the easiest way to think about it. Because here you have this bright sun illuminating an enchanted, mysterious world where there is in our intuitions. There exists design and purpose and meaning. But it, it doesn't come at you like three points in, a, in, a, in an outline. The Bible doesn't start. Point one, there is a God. A, he is three persons. B, sharing one nature. C, he loves you. It, started, it starts out with this, the truth is slant in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and it was formless and void. What? In the beginning, there was a beginning? What was before the beginning? You mean there was, there was a time when there was no time? What? There was a time where there was no material universe? It was all immaterial oh, Elohim plural but not gods a gods many natures one nature though I mean uh, or many persons the heavens and the earth why distinguish the heavens from the earth when the earth is part of the heavens mm. you see what I mean you read this read this way it's enchanting it draws you in it draws you in. We've turned it into, now listen carefully, this is the story of how God created in six 24-hour periods. Are you ready? <laughs> Seven. Theo <laughs> said eight. In any event. <laughs> boy, is that exciting. And then you go, so the eclipse means this slowly went into eclipse. That's why when you understand Darwin, he publishes his book in 1859, The Origin, ah, we're back to origins, see, of our species, the species, all the species, rather. So what, what Darwin undermines is religious authority. We are not made in the image of God. We are evolved apes. So there you go. That, so that changes human nature. And you'll see this played out with within well by 1871 his book is standard reading in our best universities and within a, probably four or five decades with the inception of harvard business school you have uh, kind of a disciple of darwin suggesting that uh, because he considered 
his first test case to U.S. Steel that these Hungarians were actually just uh, apes or uh, oxen, rather. Uh, then here's how you management manage them. The whole system of management began to evolve because people are not created by God. Therefore, they're not necessarily intelligent and responsible, and um, they need to be managed to maximize the efficiency we get from them. This all comes back to Darwin's view. So Darwin creates in the minds of so-called intelligent people a suspicion towards religion having anything to do with what we're doing in the workaday world. And this goes all the way back to, again, not only Luther, but Luther's suspicion that grew regarding the Roman Catholic Church and the presence of God in these ceremonies and sacraments. Hence, unfortunately, with his followers, you do have pretty soon the view the Roman Church is the whore of Babylon. That's a very strident way, shrill way, to create suspicion towards Catholics. Now, Luther then collapses the mission of the church to service and forgiveness. And what he was doing was trying to get the Roman church out of the business of being a leader as a civil authority. Remember, at the time, there was the Holy Roman Empire. So the faith actually informed the society, it shaped it. And this was a rebellion against that. And so you have the, uh, the throwing off of religion having much to do with public affairs, everything to do with your private life, primarily serving people and being forgiven. And so this further goes into eclipse with the rise of Darwin, Freud, Nietzsche. Darwin, human nature. They're not, it's not designed. Freud. What did Freud bring to the table? I'm just sitting and listening, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Freud brought to the table the fact that in an enchanted world, and here we are piggybacking off Charles Taylor, so you're, you're not lost. You've, you've read this in Taylor. An enchanted world that he would say held up until 1500 and applied to people whether they were religious or not. In fact, he would say everybody was religious in the broadest sense, but whether or not you were Christian. The notion was going against God was simply not an option. They'd be one of the craziest things in the world. Whether or not you believed in him, there was just this sense of he's everywhere, he permeates this. It's generally not a good idea. And hence, the disciplining and controlling of appetites, that is the disciplining of them to conform, or as Lewis said, to rotate with the planet, otherwise you get splinters, Freud threw that off. He called that repression. And then he said all mental illness 
is from repressing your desires. See where this goes? Sure, yeah. So therefore, any tradition in psychology, in science, in religion, that actually calls for you to, that says, thou shalt not, is to be suspe is suspect. And you get the furrowed brow or the arched brow of, hmm, something wrong with that. And you have eventually what Robert Bella calls the predominant view of individualism today is expressive individualism. And if you read his book, Habits of the Heart, the most, print, uh, the most uh, prominent place where this appears, he said, is in American evangelicalism. So if you want to have your settled assumptions about our faith unsettled, read his book, which is considered to be a seminal work in the field of how the Enlightenment has infected American Christianity, most particularly or most pronounced in evangelicalism, which he says is saturated with expressive individualism. So pastors are reduced to encouraging, loving, befriending, attaboying, serving, but they cannot stand in the pulpit and say, thou shalt not. That's repressive. Finally, we have Nietzsche. And Nietzsche announces in uh, 1882, God is dead. But it's a little more complex than that. His point is that uh, atheists are not honest. Because if there is no God, then there is no morality, and there is no meaning. You have to figure it out on your own. Hence, the more ancient notion of virtues don't exist. Because virtues are tied into an absolute standard, a God, gods, whatever. And now we're left with, Nietzsche's coined this term, values. I have my values, Pat. You have your values. Your values end at the tip of your fingers. And if your values ever touch me, that feels like a punch in the gut. Get your damn values back in your own sphere. Hence, in that movement, the highest, the only value, the highest value, the only virtue you want to put it that way, is tolerance. And so we begin to arrive at the world we're in today by the lack of trust is, first of all, there's nothing deep in the soil that binds you and I, Pat. There's, I mean, yeah, there's some older people out there talking about we're made in the image of God, or there's even people who feel that passionately. In fact, I hear a quarter of the population does. What does that mean? They don't really know. It means we're made in the image of God. Everybody, we, we, I guess everybody. Uh, but what does that mean? Um, God loves us. I don't feel that love. See, where I do think Taylor is right 
is this doesn't happen on the level of worldviews, theories, concepts, principles. Most of the believers I know who try to are, are really serious about trying to make a change in the world use enlightenment terms without even knowing it. So you can't solve an enlightenment problem by resting on the assumptions of the enlightenment. And the assumptions of the enlightenment introduce things like worldview that you can stand apart from the world and see it all and have a worldview. Because invariably what happens is that worldview, my worldview becomes right and all the other worldviews are wrong. So immediately I'm set up us versus them. Second, when you're talking about theories, principles, and concepts, Taylor's right. Nobody lives that way. We live by what we experience. The great David Foster Wallace commencement address, what is water? Water, the cultures are, is water going through our gills? And so to actually think we can say, we live by a Bible, the Bible, two books, the Bible and the book of nature. You know, the average person would hear that and go, what? Or when they say, <clears throat> you've got a story to tell, I've got a story to tell, and then we want to introduce you to the great narrative. Do you know how many people I meet day in and day out in the workday world who even use the word narrative? <laughs> Do you hear it at your work? Uh, no. Now, I get it. On one level, it's technically right. But part of what brings about social distrust or mistrust is when Christians are not like first century Christians, who is that famous letter, says um, they don't use a peculiar language of their own. They talk like everyday people. And I find that we more and more, even though, yes, there is a narrative in the Bible, yes, there is, but we, but we use language that hardly anybody else uses. Well, what that does is it erodes social trust because in a, in a world where I figure out what's right, I have been through my experience, come to believe we're not made in the image of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you guys talk about on occasion. Um, I read in the Bible rules and regulations, which I find to be repressive. There's Freud. And I don't see evidence that uh, when you say God is present everywhere, I don't see the evidence. There's Nietzsche. Woody Allen put it this way. They tell me that uh, the glory of God is seen in nature he says, all I see is a giant restaurant. <laughs> so what happens? Well, by the time you come, I'll give you a recap, in my opinion, 20th century. I steal some of this from a University of Colorado professor. I watched him on a VHS way, way, way back in the, probably the 70s. He was rolling through the uh, 20th century. He said, the first 10 years, the experiences you had pretty much set your assumptions about life. So if you grew up in um, the uh, first decade, rather, of a century, I can't remember what he said, but the second decade, 
what we call the Roaring Twenties, you grew up for the first time in American history. There was enough resources, financial, cultural aid, you know, so on and so forth, that you could finally say, whoopee, to hell with repression. The last gasp was trying to pass prohibition. And, and basically, so the 20th century, if you look at abortion rates, drug usage, drinking, uh, prostitution, sex, on and on and on. Keep in mind, when those rates come back, so you can only flick the bird of repression so long, but when the whole thing crashes, 1929, and you enter into a depression, uh, people tighten the belt, reel it in, and that's the 1930s, the Great Depression. Now, we're living through some of that, but there's a difference now that you didn't have then. Social technologies are going to allow us to continue to throw off repression, primarily through social media. We'll talk about that in a second. So by the time we come to World War One, World War One, if you think the stimulus checks are helpful and good, well, the 1940s and a war is a giant stimulus check for the federal government. Levels of debt never seen before got to be done. The upside for America is a, a devastated planet except the United States of America, which is never invaded. It's not bombed. We come out of this thing with the resources to rule the world. And so the rest of the 1940s up until 1954 is the rebuilding of the economy. Back to where it was roaring along in the market, if you want to measure by the stock market, in 1929, before it fell. Think about that, 25 years. That's the first 25 years of my dad's life. So the first 25 years of my dad's life shapes him be loyal to these corporations, don't change chances, save, live within your means. I'm born in 1954. The year the market surpasses where it was in 29, and we're now ready to get back to the 1920s. Takes a little while, but welcome to the 1960s. And the 60s was the ultimate of flicking the bird at authority and trust. So, even though there was some pretty good music came out of the 60s, frankly, you have the uh, throwing it off. Now, here again, when we come to the 1920s, we, we have expended financial, and a lot of social capital with irrational exuberance. You get to the end of 1969, and we have spent our wad on a lot of things that now start to fall apart. First of all, the space race, the so-called race to the moon, which we won, was unbelievably expensive. And we began to be in a, de a debtor nation. And so you have what's called the mellow 70s. If you were born and grew up in the mellow 70s, you began to feel the, the collapse of this trust and also the collapse of just uh, the economy we had. You know, a lot of pension and retirements are pegged to growth in the 1960s, which was often 7%. And so they will put together a retirement program for you designed to give you a 7% return. 
which doesn't hardly exist anymore. So what happens is we start to create mountains of debt because we deserve it. We're owed it. But you have Watergate, which again, if you grew up in that era, is this sense of massive distrust of government. Or if you grew up in the 80s, part of the signal event there, a seminal event was Challenger. So NASA doesn't know what the hell it's doing. And you have these, these collapsing levels of trust in institutions. That's the point of Brooks that we come to today where people want to hunker into small tribes, more rightly called echo chambers. And the difference between the 1920s and this era that we're in is when things collapsed, you pretty much were left on your own. You couldn't go online, for example, and buy a sex toy. Sex toys, by the way, the reason I mentioned that, it's since the coronavirus, have doubled in sales in the last 12 months. Good article, a very sad article in the New York Times about four, five, six weeks ago. I believe it's Nicholas Kristof. Story of a woman, 14-year-old at that time, <clears throat> whose boyfriend asked her to send him some pictures. And they end up in Pornhub. And three years later, she's living in a car with three cats because porn has shot through the roof since coronavirus. That's the difference. In the 1920s, you didn't have all that. So when things collapsed and went, in, went into the Great Depression, it was bread lines. It was a few who worked or you worked your butt off. You didn't sit around watching TV. It didn't exist. You didn't sit around watching porn. It didn't exist. Was it prostitution? Of course. Did you have to pay? Yes. Did you have to run the risk of being caught? Yes. Was it against the law? Yes. Where are we today? Well, you can avoid all that. You can pull it up on your phone, pull it up on your iPad, pull it up on your laptop. This is a cancer path that erodes trust because trust, a synonym for trust in scripture but elsewhere is confidence. And if you're not even confident that you are not enslaved to something like lust and porn, it's going to be hard to trust anybody else. This is becoming more and more clear to me. So if we just talk about the Christian population, where 60 to 70% of the men in anonymous surveys, 40% of women, confess to if not being feeling like they're trapped many of them talk, they feel they are addicted or wrestle with it and 37 percent of pastors you're going to be suspicious of even your own desires and your own body which seems to be betraying you because of what you want to do in your heart and it's going to be more difficult than to trust others. Now, frankly, I do see this with even younger 
Christians now that my hair is going white and I'm 66. More often than that, I'll share something that I think is fairly close to, Hughes fairly close to pre-enlightenment traditions. You get this arched brow, a suspicion like what? Versus the open hand of, hmm, I've been trained to open my hands week after week to have the body of blood of Jesus enter me. And I've found that by eating death, life comes to the other side. I've just gotten used to not suspecting this, but this could be more death that I need to bring into my body so that I die and discover real life. Hmm, I've never heard it before, but maybe there's something here. Now, that's inside the evangelical community, but you expand it back out. And you can see it everywhere. So I'm I'm not active on Facebook. I had a friend set up a page two decades ago or somewhere. Really? <laughs> I don't even I think it has a picture of the Italian hillside or Tuscany. Which is good. That would be good if it's still there. But uh, you know, Kathy, my wife is and she's not a habitual user, but she's she looks at postings by believers given the events of the last few weeks and she's appalled how could they be so blind well you can you're blind if beginning 500 years ago we're part of a society that as Ian McGilchrist points out all of this creates an unconscious bias for the left hemisphere which is overly confident in what it thinks it sees, hardly sees much of the big picture, if at all, and is blind to its shortcomings. The left hemisphere can operate on its own and is supremely confident it sees it all. And that's where we are today. And that means I'm talking Western world. I'm not talking about the faith community. I'm talking about the Western world. And it's everywhere. Give a last story on this and then. So many, many years ago through um, a friend of mine who happened also to be a U.S. senator, we tried to rally a group of senators, Republican, Democrat, Independent, just to come and to just to reflect on the great experiment and how we're doing. In other words, understand the times, so we know what to do. You know, we couldn't find more than two or three. We couldn't find, the majority weren't even familiar with the great experiment. The majority came out of a law school, a lot good law schools, but they never learned it there. And then finally, there's the great, how's that practical? So it never got off the ground. The quintessential American response to most things is, how's that practical?
one of the most, you know, one of the most impractical things out there. Love. Hmm. No greater love for a friend than to lay down your life. How's that practical? You're more fortunate if you give it all away than if you receive. How's that practical? <laughs> I hope you see, I hope you hear listeners. It's been 500 years into this. And it, in our opinion, Pat and I, and I think many others, Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, A Secular Age, which we don't encourage you to read because you will, <laughs> you won't make it, you'll go, <laughs> but I think he's, I think he's right on a number yes. of points and here would be his point. This disenchanted age began in the 1500s. We've talked about that, but it was over by the year 2000. So it was a 500 year cycle. Well, what, what's after that? Now he doesn't go into this, but this will frame up where we, where we understand the times at least. For 500 years, the nation of Judah ignored God as God continually said, you've been on the wrong path. Return to the ancient path. And they said, we will not return. We'll figure this thing out. And so after 500 years, God put them in exile, Babylon, 70 years. Imagine this, listeners. For 500 years, we've been on the wrong path. God has sent along prophetic voices, say we turn to the ancient path. We have said, no. And that includes the faith community. So after 500 years, God has put us, spiritually speaking, in exile. That began the year 2000. 2007, Taylor writes his book that the Enlightenment is well over. It's been over since 2000. Those who believe that faith and science debates or worldview is the way forward simply are no longer in touch with the world we live in. They're using models from the Enlightenment which is over. Leslie Newbigin, even before then, the great missiologist said, the one thing you could be said for certain about this chapter in human history is that it's over. So what's happened since 2000? Two things. Number one, the faith tradition in America, the Christian tradition, is in exile. Number two, you see, begin to see the dramatic rise of people who say, this whole enlightenment thing. They wouldn't put it in these words, but here's what they experience. A disenchanted, unspiritual, mechanistic, technologically driven world. I can't, I can't do it. There's, there's more going on. I don't know what it is, but I intuit there's more. Something is wrong. Uh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. the fastest growing percentage of the U.S. population. 
Now, if the Babylonian exile was 70 years, and it's any sort of precedent for our day, we have been in exile for 20 years, and we're going to be in exile for another 50. And it's to this issue, to this reality, that Taylor makes this, I think, the capstone of his book, the Christians in this sort of world are left to themselves when it comes to resources, that church and parachurch are not providing resources for this world that we're in. So even as I read Brooks' excellent article on the collapse of social trust, even that article doesn't give you resources for what do we do about it. So Mike, I mean, naturally we end up at this conclusion where we, I'm asking the same question. Okay. So what are, what are the resources? And I, I suspect people listening to this conversation think the same way. Uh, there are at least some out there going, okay, this is great, but I am thirsty for those resources. And that's something where I, I'm deeply appreciative of our relationship because you have a lot of those resources. Um, and, and, that's been incredibly valuable for me for listeners. If you've heard any of this, you know, Mike's wealth of knowledge and standing on the shoulder of giants is immense. So let us know what you found helpful. Reach out to Mike via email uh, on the Clapham website, but let us know what topics we've talked about, uh, where you'd like us to dive deeper, help us discover how to best resource you.